Welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me on this episode is the fantastic Delisa O'Brien. Hello. Hey, welcome back. I think this is the third episode that you have recorded. Uh, well, the third episode that we're actually publishing. We did... Uh, we, yeah, I think I was on a two-parter, so yeah. Uh, well, and it, you were on a, uh, a two-parter where we had to re-record it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have to give them away all the secrets. Oh, I don't mind. Uh, I, honestly, I, I listen to podcasts quite a bit, and um, one of my favorite aspects of that is like hearing when people make mistakes or the ways in which um, it's not as polished as, as, as you might expect from uh, like a TV show or, or, or something like that. Yeah. Like there's only so much you can edit. I think, I think it's more fun when it feels more like a, Oh, we're actually just going to sit down and have a conversation. Like, obviously there's going to be some editing, but like, I think it's more fun when it's just like, Oh, this is, this is genuine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get started uh, with today's episode, uh, which is actually probably, it, it's the shortest script that I've written so far. So I'm not sure about how long this episode is going to end up being at the end. But before we get started on that, I did want to ask, uh, do you have anything new and fun or exciting uh, in your life? Something fun to look forward to? Um, well, just a few hours ago, I got my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So I'm very excited to be fully vaccinated and ready to get back out into the world legitimately. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I only have my, um, I only have my first shot. Uh, so I'm half vaccinated, <laughs> but, uh, Almost. yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that too. I, I know it's not going to change overnight. Uh, but it still feels like, oh, this is this is a big step. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What we're going to talk about today is something that, like, now normally you or whoever else I have on the show, I like to try to keep them in the dark about what it is we're actually talking about. Hopefully, they know as little as possible about what it is. But uh, you and I have actually kind of talked about this specific thing before, but just sort of in passing. Yes. I'm not a big comic book person, so you introduced me to the idea and what it what it really is. Right. Uh, so, like today, we're going to be talking about uh, fridging. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know what that is, I will definitely be getting into it. Um, <laughs> but I think it's an important thing to talk about. The reason why this script is so short is because there's uh it, it's mostly it's just a, a term that gets applied to things but I want to talk about why it exists. And p- part of part of why I think that that is important is because if you really had to boil down a lot of uh the majority of the episodes that I've written so far are about you could get into like othering people. <laughs> so there, there, there's a lot of like racism or sexism. Most of it uh, that I've written happens to focus on the sexism aspect of it, but there is uh, racial components to things too, and this definitely will hit that. <laughs> oh, 
Okay. <laughs> so uh, when addressing difficult topics like sexism or racism, especially within popular media, it's easy to rely on acts of overt discrimination. Refusing service to someone uh, of another gender or a race using racial slurs or casually propositioning a coworker are all scenarios often played over and over to showcase these problems. Even this show has dealt with its fair share of sexist or racist ideas that are clearly delineated as such. These are easy markers laid out to make the conversation simple, but the ones that are harder to describe, the ones that sneak under the radar, are often more harmful and have lasting consequences. These can come in the form of laws that don't necessarily single out a race or a gender, but are clearly meant as a form of disenfranchisement. They can be a work environment uh, where casual sexual discussion is deemed appropriate. Uh, They can be an unconscious bias that has never been questioned. And I have had my fair share of both of those things. <laughs> uh, it, it's 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 the underbelly. It's it's just there, and that's why I think it's important to take a step back and reflect on things that we do in our everyday life, and if needed, correct the course that we are on. This is made easier if we have a list of examples already made for us, and that's what Gail Simone and others set out to do when they created Women in Refrigerators, a website that listed several examples from superhero comic books where female characters are injured, raped, killed, or depowered as a plot device intended to move a male character story arc forward. Now, this type of trope is seen over and over again in the comic book realm. It's nearly as ubiquitous as the damsel in distress. Take a brief glance through mainstream superhero comics, and you'll find examples like the death of Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man, nearly any woman to ever exist in a Hulk comic, Batgirls crippling at the hands of the Joker, and the originator of the name, the death of Alexandra DeWitt in the Green Lantern comics. Like most rational things in our modern age, this has caused an incredible controversy and a rebuttal built on false equivalences. We will take some time to look over everything, and hopefully by the end, we will have shown uh, a light on some implicit biases that have a tendency to shape the overall industry. So, I mean, do you know who uh, Gail Simone is at all? I do not know. Uh, I am I'm a big fan of her. Uh, she is a, a she's a comic book writer. Um, she is uh, often uh, she she's often credited with um, writing very very strong female characters. She did a Red Sonia series, which I was a big fan of. She wrote Birds of Prey. All of these involve um, strong female characters. She does know what she's talking about <laughs> when uh, when it comes to uh, dissecting sort of um, ongoing tropes in comic books. I, I, I genuinely really, really enjoy her work and her as a person. She's she's also a troll on Twitter. <laughs> so if you if you ever if you follow her, she likes to point out uh, weird uh, nerdy things, but she always gets them wrong on purpose to piss people off. Uh, so like okay. uh, you know Cyclops from the X Men. Yeah. One of the things that she constantly talks about with him is like clearly that's heat vision. It's coming out. It's going to light things on fire, and or or it's a laser, and neither of those is true. It, it's it's a it's concussive force. And people, uh, particularly men, get really angry when you get these things wrong. <laughs> and she does this all the time. And it's so funny to see people's reactions, especially people who like, by this point, 
if you follow her, you should know that's what she's doing. Well, she's giving them an opportunity to mansplain clearly. So she's doing a service for all those who are like itching to just tell women how things work. Oh, they take full advantage of it too. Uh, So before we truly begin, I think we should note something that Gail Simone wrote on the landing page of the website itself. An important point. This isn't about assessing blame about an individual story or the treatment of an individual character, and it's certainly not about personal attacks on the creators who kindly shared their thoughts on this phenomenon. It's about the trend, its meaning and relevance, if any. Plus, it's just fun to talk about refrigerators with dead people in them. I don't know why. So, (laughs) with that said, there is no reason to approach this from a defensive stance, even though I'm nearly positive that's how some will choose to operate. Noticing a trend and questioning its origins is not the same as applying blame or calling others misogynists. Creative decisions like this aren't always negative, but when that same decision is so prevalent it's nearly a joke... We have to question why, and if the answer is lazy writing, then perhaps there are better ways to move forward. Uh, I um, I think on uh, on, on, uh, one of the previous episodes that you were on, you and I talked about uh, The Punisher and how uh, in the 70s, because uh, the majority of the people that were writing were uh, white men, the default for characters that were created were white men. And yeah. it, that that is that there's a long history of that in comics. So when you come into these things and you notice a trend specifically relating to female characters, it's going to be really important to have that as context because there are so few female characters. So yeah, it's, exactly. you're going to the the the, the uh, statistics of that are going to be a little bit skewed. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of like something similar where I think a majority of Black people will always kind of count how many Black people are in the room when they go somewhere. So it's just kind of like if you're reading something as a woman, obviously you're going to be like, oh, she's the only female in this whole book. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then you also have to deal with the fact that in the majority of those cases, they are the love interest or the 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 aunt that takes care of you know it, it, you you have specific roles that are gendered. Yes, and that's all that you kind of can be. I mean, that's what women are here for, right? <laughs> Just making babies and taking care of men. In any case, Gail's love of comics is the primary motivator for this list. As she stated on her site, quote, In any case, having a uterus myself, I found that I most enjoyed reading about the girl heroes, or super chicks. And it had been nagging me for a while that in mainstream comics, being a girl superhero meant inevitably being killed, maimed, or depowered, it seemed. So really, for my own edification and with malice towards none, I started making a list of the super chicks who had gone down in one of those ways, ignoring for the moment the wives, girlfriends of superheroes, a whole nother problem. I'm not hugely up on the continuity issues, and I'm not a Marvel scholar by any means, so the first list had lots of errors and notable omissions. But as I said, it had just been me doodling, essentially. 
when I realized what it was, act, uh, or sorry, when I realized that it was actually harder to list major female heroes who hadn't been sliced up somehow, I felt that I might be onto something a bit, well, creepy. And Gail's not alone in this thinking. While comics were never exclusively a medium for men, it had nearly always been marketed and predominantly sold to men. By the time their list was created, however, that had changed. And by 2015, women made up 47% of the fan base. The trouble, though, is the lack of stories by anyone not identified as a cishet man, so women are often relegated to secondary characters. And that's the case with Alexandra DeWitt, girlfriend to Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. Her role in the series was short-lived, lasting about six issues and not well-established outside of her role as the girlfriend, which isn't much of a surprise given her short tenure. It doesn't mean that she lacked any development, but just that the care for the character didn't have much time to take hold before she was removed from the series. She was a photographer, and with Kyle as a superhero, they devised a way for her to take pictures of him to sell to newspapers in order to make some money, while also helping him work on controlling his powers. The downside to the pairing, however, is that it wasn't too hard to discern their connection and a supervillain named Major Force tracked down Alex's apartment where he murdered her and shoved her into the refrigerator, which would be the inspiration for the name of this trope and the website associated. So when this website was making its rounds and inspiring creators to respond, Ron Mars, the writer of the series at the time, chimed in, quote, the more infamous example I suspect is Alex, Kyle Rayner's then-girlfriend. I see a reference uh, to her being cut up and stuck in a refrigerator. Firstly, you assume incorrectly, Alex was cut up, which is frankly a rather common mistake. The real story behind that page is that, as initially written and drawn, Kyle finds her body stuffed into the fridge, her whole body, in one piece. In fact, I still have a copy of that original page. The comics code went bananas and made us change the artwork so that the door was mostly shut. This had the effect of forcing readers to use their imaginations as to what the unseen scene was, and a lot of readers went for the most grisly thing imaginable, a dismembered body. I think this actually says a great deal more about some readers' minds than it does about our original intentions. Score one for the comics code. Which, I I mean, I think that's a weird um, defense. to be like, well, I mean, we didn't cut her up. We just murdered her and threw her <laughs> in a refrigerator. I, I can't imagine arguing that part in court. Be like, oh, what, what is the point? What, what, is, what is your actual uh, argument here? <laughs> well, I didn't mutilate her. I just murdered her. I don't, like, to, to read that, I mean, the implication there is that, well, we didn't do anything that crazy because we intended for her whole body to be intact. But for me, that's a weird thing to, to hear because that completely uh, sidesteps the actual, the, the, the actual complaint about how w- women yeah. are handled. Yeah. I was like, she's still dead mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a fridge or a suitcase. <laughs> so all that said, I can tell you Alex was a character destined to die from the moment she was first introduced in Green Lantern 48. I created her with the intention of having her be murdered at the hands of Major Force. I took a lot of care in building her as a character because I wanted her to be liked and her death to mean something to the readers. 
I wanted readers to be horrified at the crime and to emphasize with Kyle's loss. Her death was meant to bring brutal realization to Kyle that being Green Lantern wasn't fun in games. It was also meant to sever his links with his old life, paving the way for his move to New York. And ultimately, I wanted her death to be memorable and illustrate just how truly heinous Major Force was. Thus, The Fridge. From the reactions, I think it succeeded fairly well at those goals. It's five years later, and people are still talking about it. More than anything as a writer, you want the audience to react emotionally to your work, to care. I wrote a villain committing a truly despicable deed. That doesn't mean I endorse or admire that behavior. I doubt Thomas Harris thinks of Hannibal Lecter as a positive role model either. And it's probably worth mentioning that Major Force was punished for the act. So, I mean, I also think that's another weird uh, sidestep there. Because it's not, no one's saying that you are... um, like giving up the past. Like. Yeah. No, and no one's saying that you're 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 um identifying with the villain and saying that this was a good thing to do. It's just that this type of writing is so systemic that maybe we should look at it and figure out why. <laughs> yeah. It's like let's pause here for a moment. Why did you know the need? And no one's saying, like, you can have that be your your story. It can still be good. Um, but also, you can have that story and your intention is not misogynistic. You're just writing a story. But because of the the underlying acceptance of these types of stories, and the the ways that it disproportionately affects a particular gender, it becomes very complicated. And uh, comics have a long history as a male-oriented and male-dominated industry. That's not a statement of judgment, simply one of fact. I do think comics can and should be more sensitive to female characters. But these are times in which the general editorial mindset is cut to the fight scene, in which half-naked women on cover spike sales. Publishers are unfortunately more concerned with survival than with sensitivity to women. And that's a shame. If we want to save our industry, maybe we should stop ignoring half the population as possible readers. Uh, so I know that uh, was a little bit confusing. That's Ron Mars's um, follow-up to, what, to everything else that he just said. So he does sort of acknowledge that uh, we have a long way to go. Um, and we should we should be focusing on that. Um, and I think that that would be a better argument um, had uh, it not been, like the the previous two paragraphs that he, <laughs> he responded sort of sidestepped the actual issue. Um, yeah. I, I, I kind of, I mean, it's not horror. I'm still impressed by the answer. I mean, he does get to where we want to be anyway. It's just, I think he, he started a, a, a bit defensive. Um, but then he did explain his thought process. Um, he acknowledged the downsides and reflected on what could be changed. And that's a good place to be. Um, you, you don't see that often with, I mean, think of how many celebrities have had to apologize for some stupid shit that they've done. and. Yeah, it's like there is some self-awareness, but then you just kind of like 
script it in a way that takes away the like genuine apology. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think, I mean, I think he could have had a better response. I, I think his, I, I don't know. I can't speak for him. I think his heart is in the right place. And he does, I mean, just because of the way uh, he sort of comments at the end, the half naked women on covers spiking sales. That is one of those things that has always driven me crazy. Um, I, I have a, a wizard magazine stored somewhere from, from the nineties. And it has a uh, rogue uh, on the cover from the X-Men. And it, she is very hypersexualized. Psylocke is on it too, also hypersexualized. And they had just like decapitated a robot. So it's like sex and violence right on the cover. And the blurb in the corner was about how they were going to be talking about Generation X, which was a, a, a more, it, it was another X-Men book focused on a younger group. And the blurb specifically mentions this is the kind of stuff you won't see <laughs> in that book. <laughs> and I was like, but you're using it to sell the damn magazine that was talking about it. And I love that dichotomy. I think it was meant to be funny. I don't know, but uh, it definitely got a, a, a chuckle out of me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, now that I've piqued your interest, that's not what this is about. <laughs> So, I mean, uh, Ron's message is sadly admirable because he isn't the only creator to respond to this list. And as it grew, Gail started reaching out to others in the industry to see what responses they had and to acknowledge the weirdness of the trope. Not all of them went quite so well, but before we get too far into it, I want to talk about the trope itself and some prominent examples. I won't be sticking just to the list that Gail and others created, but I will be using the definition to expand a little bit. So. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Gwen Stacy. Do you know anything about the Gwen Stacy uh, character in the comics? Not much, no. Uh, so now she's got more of a following. It's it's kind of weird. She had phases of fans. At least this is my interpretation of the way it went. Uh, as a girlfriend to Peter, she was just kind of a stock female character. It seemed just, I'm here. I like him. I am going to be concerned about things and that this will provide conflict to the superhero aspect of his character. Then uh, she was killed. The Green Goblin threw her off of a bridge, resulting in her death. And it spent uh, the next, like, three, four decades of Spider-Man comics would constantly go back to that and talk about how he was not able to save his girlfriend. And that, that wasn't like that made a big impact on Spider-Man. It made a big impact on people who cared about that character. She didn't have much in the way of a strong personality. I would say, um, I like not in the same way that Mary Jane does. Um, and people cared a lot about her because of her death. And I think that's, mm. that's interesting. But again, that was done just to give Spider-Man, uh, a, a different story. It was furthering his plot by killing her. Uh, so 
Yeah. Uh, she never really was a character. Her death uh, only served to advance him. Um, now, recently, it, it, people have gotten more into Gwen Stacy, but that's because they have like an alternate universe version of her where she's Spider Woman, and that character is awesome. I like that character a lot, but it's it's very different from the original Gwen Stacy. Yeah, that's how I was like. I remember like into the Spider Verse Gwen Stacy's, but she that yeah. that version of the character is uh, my favorite version of the character, and she is more in line with kind of like what Mary Jane originally was in the comics. Uh, just a little bit more like fun, more punk rock, um, uh, way more independent. Gwen in the original stories was uh, like the, the goody two shoes is sort of the only way I can think about it. Uh, describe. She's most often just identified by having a, a black hairband and a green jacket. Like that's, if you ask someone about Gwen Stacy, they're going to talk about her death and probably what she looked like. And that's about it. (laughs) That's a big character. (laughs) Uh, If we look at alternative versions of Spider-Man, we can also look at Mary Jane's death in Spider-Man Reign, where she literally died because of Peter's irradiated sperm. (laughs) So like that, like that is a perfect example. It is, she's dead before the, the story starts. And this is an alternate universe version. Where do the sperm even come into play? So this is, uh, he and Mary Jane got married. Okay. (laughs) Like, wait. This is an alternate universe set in the future. He and Mary Jane got married. Uh, she, they, they had sex. Uh, and apparently he, uh, was a, he gave her some form of like radiation through their sex and it killed her. So that's like the, the story starts with him just depressed because Mary Jane's dead. And the entire premise of that, that storyline is we have killed her. Let's look at what Spider-Man does now. <laughs> And if we move out from the if we move out from the wall crawler side of comics, you can find plenty of characters like Batgirl or Supergirl. But you can also venture into other media to find characters like Jenny Calendar in the Buffy series, or almost any of the James Bond's girlfriends. Like I don't know if you know I, I don't know if you watched Buffy or any of the James Bond's movie uh, James Bond movies, but oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I started Buffy, so I'm still like new to it in like season one. But yeah, okay. sporadically. I will say just forget what uh, the name of the character that I just told you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So all of these are interesting in their own right and handled with varying success. Uh, some helped to propel a story into classic status, and others caused some periods of questioning. But what really kickstarted the resurgent interest of fridging happens to be from a comic book movie. One that sparked more talks about its use in media and put more attention on the original list. And that movie is Deadpool 2. Have you seen Deadpool 2? I have. Okay, so perfect. To spoil the whole thing, at the start of the movie, Deadpool's girlfriend, who he spent an entire previous movie pining for and rescuing, which is its own trope that I, I definitely want to discuss, is murdered. And it sends Wade into a downward spiral that kicks off the main story. So, t- 
to quote from a Vox article in the movie, there's now a debate on whether Vanessa was fridged, a term for a comic book trope in which the girlfriend or wife of a hero dies to further said hero's motivations and story. The trope reduces the girlfriend or wife to a plot device. They have no business existing aside from being a source of pain for the hero. So, uh, that was one of the things that I was shocked by when I first watched the movie because I thought for sure she was going to be... I mean, worst case scenario, you de- you, if you didn't want to have her in the movie for that long, she could just be doing something else. <laughs> right. Like, it, it was a, literally anything. Uh, the controversy uh, surrounding the movie was compounded by comments from Deadpool 2's co-writers Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who wrote the... Sp- who wrote the screenplay with Ryan Reynolds, um, who said they didn't know the trope even existed. Oh, great research skills while producing a multi-million dollar movie. Well, and it's also kind of interesting that like you wouldn't know that that is a trope because regardless, if you take the comic book aspect out of it, like killing a girlfriend to further a hero's story, it's, it's not specific to comic books. That happens all the time. And it's weird. I mean, I don't think, again, I don't think it's bad. I don't think the trope is bad. I think the, the, the fact that it's used all the time is a little worrying. Uh, yeah, it's like, new idea, anyone, how else can we progress his, his hero arc? other than killing a woman. Right. Even later in the same article, uh, the writer points out some fairly popular examples. Quote, several examples of fridging loom large over modern pop culture. Perhaps the most immediately recognizable example is the infamous what's in the box moment at the climax of seven. But there are other noteworthy examples too. The character of Rachel Dawes in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy ultimately proves to be a disposable character whose horrifying fiery dispatch fuels Bruce Wayne's desire for revenge against the Joker. In fact, most of Christopher Nolan's films involve a female character being gruesomely killed to further a man's grief-stricken character arc. Several famous modern fantasy heroes, from Ned Stark to Anakin Skywalker to Severus Snape, are haunted by the deaths of women around them, often women who died before the main action of the series even begins. An adjacent device is the hero's overwrought reaction to the threat of violence, often sexualized violence, against her. Witness the abduction at the center of uh, the Iliad, which leads to a war on behalf of Helen of Troy, or Odysseus's rage at the climax of the Odyssey when he kills all of Penelope's potential suitors. So part of why I'm trying to hammer home how widespread this device can be outside of comics is because I feel it's important to see how pervasive it is in any medium. It doesn't have to just be comics. <laughs> so, like. Also, Gail and her colleagues have already done a ton of very good work detailing its use within comic books. So I, I think it's, it's important to look at it uh, outside of that, too. Um, so again, the existence of this trope isn't bad. It's, uh, over, it's overabundance is kind of an issue and one that should be addressed, which is why, uh, which is why Gail reached out to other creators uh, to see how they would respond. We're actually going to start with um, some responses now. And uh, the first one is actually from Jerry Conway, who we heard quite a bit from on the last episode you were on, uh, because he was the creator of The Punisher. Yes. 
Yes, I remember that. And I quite liked him. His he he had a lot of very thoughtful responses to uh, some of the criticisms of the Punisher. So Jerry Conway said, "Quote." Of course, since comic book superheroes began life as an adolescent male fantasy figure, and for the most part continue to fill that role, we shouldn't be surprised the primarily male creators of comics act out subconscious adolescent male hostility toward women in their art. Powerful women equal mommy equal enemy slash love object slash tormentor of the post-pubescent male psyche. Sadly, Freudian, but true. Even so, the intensity of the violence against comic book superheroines, in fact, against everyone, male, female, super, or otherwise, seems to have increased exponentially since I quit writing comics in the late 80s. And that is one of my favorite responses. I think he gets right to the heart of it. There is a power dynamic involved. And mm. I think there is for, uh, there is a subconscious um subconscious uh violence toward women regardless of how you actively act there is um if you look at the way society has been built the women sort of getting any sort of agency or um any sort of power themselves is almost always seen as negative. And a lot of these people in their fan in, in, in a, a power fantasy role would, they would act out violence to stop that. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad person who would write these stories, but I do think that there might be something like baked within you that you might want to, uh, Take a look at. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's like, all right, well, if these women are such like threats and like someone you want to like get out of the way, why does it then impact the the hero or whoever so much when they die? It just, you know, you think it would just be like, oh, she's disposable. So. Well, there there is the the other side of this is where it plays out for the story and then it goes away. So some some characters it lasts a long time. You have Spider Man constantly talking about Gwen Stacy dying, but then you have other characters where uh, someone dies. It's for that story. They are sad and then they get over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I want to. I I also think it's important to make clear that. Uh, when I talk about like the sort of baked in uh, sexism in within people's subconscious, um, I think there is um, for some people anyway, there is a desire to push back against that and say no, 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 no. Well, like I, like I love women. I would not have like these uh, a, a sexist reasoning for these things. But like that's not the case. The same was like when. People talk about like racism. There is overt racism where that is a uh, that is that is a predominant like I hate like black people, I hate brown people, I hate whoever. And you can point at that and say that is racism. But then there's also things where it's just like, well, society has said if a 
a white man has a gun, he's a freedom fighter. If a black man has a gun, he's a thug. And you are going to take that message in regardless of how you personally feel on that matter. And so sometimes that's going to be baked inside you and you have to actually look at like the ways that you view the world. It's, it's, it's the way that it's not just America, but definitely in America, we have decided to deal with anyone that is not in the ruling class, which is a straight white male. Yeah. It's like ingrained and conscious biases, biases. Right. So, uh, so moving on, uh, Mark Crilly, I think that's how you pronounce his name, responded. I think Tony Isabella made a good point when he pointed this out as part of a larger tendency in the entire entertainment industry. I think it's pretty scary that people find this kind of stuff entertaining. I think it's safe to say that if more women were involved in the writing of comics, there would be a lot less of this violence for cheap thrills going on at the expense of a female character. To come at it from a different angle, I think it smacks of plain old bad writing. Surely people can come up with plot lines that don't involve major characters dying right and left, and then even lamer being miraculously restored to life a few issues later. I think the trend of characters being killed or nearly killed should be sharply reduced on dramatic rounds alone. How can it uh, possibly have a powerful effect when it's been so overused as a plot device? And that's another response that I really liked. I think both of these guys are hitting two different uh, uh, aspects of why this is a problem and ways that it can be fixed. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this. Unfortunately, they get worse. Of course they do. Peter David, possible future subject of an episode, responded, but certainly there's any number of dead or disrupted male characters as well. Sure, Supergirl lost her invisibility and shape-shifting powers, but on the other hand, she gained the flame powers as created through her wings and a new uh, female character, Linda Danvers, was created. Yes, Mara's child was killed and she went nuts, but on the other hand, it was Aquaman's child as well, and he was maimed to boot. And the Hulk's powers have been screwed around with any number of times. And this is a gentle pushback to the concept, one where I don't fully agree with the conclusion, but with some valid points to address. Now, I often see arguments like this pop up to dismiss moments of sexism, racism, or acts of violence, and I go back and forth on how I feel this should be addressed. The reasoning usually comes down to whether or not I believe the person raising these concerns is doing so in good faith, or if they are a bad faith actor. Nothing should be above criticism because we should always be looking toward improving ourselves and our understanding of the world. So while Peter David argues that these events happen to men as well, which I would agree with, the reason I don't agree with the conclusion is that it ignores the greater context. If we look at percentages, the numbers become more important. In fact, according to The Pudding, only 26.7% of all DC and Marvel characters are female and only 12% of mainstream superhero comics have female protagonists. So just over a quarter of the characters in the mainstream big two comic book industry are women, which leads to some huge disparities in how often men are treated to a fridging event. By focusing on when it happens to men, it strips the context away from the conversation. It's the same logic as saying more white people are shot by the police every year. This is true, but when it's adjusted for population, it becomes laughably different. Black people are shot at nearly twice the rate as white people. So the argument in both of these scenarios is one that is being made out of defense and laziness rather than addressing a serious problem. 
The trope isn't bad on its own, again, but it's used as a cheap way to get an emotional beat rather than working hard and creating a more compelling story. Some creators, though, have a different opinion. And now we're going we're gonna to have some fun talking about this because I, ha- I have some thoughts on it. We had talked about fridging, but I don't think I mentioned to you uh, dead men defrosting. I have not heard about one. Uh, dead men defrosting is a term adopted by detractors and uses examples of male characters whose deaths are used to push a story along. So it's an interesting counterpoint and one that I think should be acknowledged, but let's actually take a deeper look. Uh, I'm going to quote from comicbasics.com. Jason Todd's death became the revenge point for Batman. As a result of his death, Batman fearlessly chased Joker around the world, eventually catching up to him and getting his justice. But that's only one example. There's Captain America, whose death over and above creating a media frenzy became a rallying point for both male and female superheroes. And later in the same post, they list prominent examples like Charles Xavier, uh, Archie Andrews, Batman, Uncle Ben, Superman, The Flash, uh, who disappeared for multiple decades as a result. And this is fairly accurate to list. I've seen in other areas around the internet uh, the same sort of list that are usually using the same characters and all of those examples usually are just saying well this is why fridging isn't a real thing that's why we created this concept of dead men defrosting because we're basically just telling you that like yeah i can give a name to uh, i can give a name to a trope but uh it's it's just going to be the same thing as what you're describing so therefore what you're describing isn't a big deal and there are a few points I want to make about this. <laughs> I'll go down in the examples in order that they are given. Jason Todd, who was the Robin famously murdered by the Joker, is actually a pretty good starting point because it almost fits the exact mold of fridging. It gets a little wonky, though, when you get to specifics. Jason was murdered to further the plot of a male superhero. That's true. The mirror of fridging would be to further the plot of a female superhero, though. And this is a minor complaint, but one worth mentioning since it does highlight that the death is still in service of a, male's, a male hero's story. If the death were left to its own story, I think it would be a great example, but this is comics and nothing can be left behind. Jason returned from the dead and became a vigilante whose entire persona is motivated by the failure of Batman to save him and his anger at the Joker for murdering him. This isn't to say that this type of thing hasn't happened to some of the female characters either. I think Batgirl comes the closest, but it's much more rare for the women in comics to actually recover. So they use the first example here is one where they uh, they killed someone to further a male hero's plot, and then they went back on it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but he's resurrected, so it's cool. Uh, but let's, let's go further down this list and we'll look at Captain America's death. And when he died in the comics, it was a huge event. It literally came at the end of an event comic. So like, it didn't happen in the, the event comic itself. It did happen in Captain America's own comic. Uh, but it was at, as a direct result of that event. Uh, there's the Civil War comics, if you've ever... I mean, I th- you've probably seen Captain America Civil War. Yes. And it, the way the the event ended is Captain America ends up in custody of the United States government. And as he's on his, I think he's going to trial. As he's on his way to trial, he is shot and killed. Oh, that's so 
<laughs> he comes back. <laughs> when he died in the comics, it was a huge event. It literally came at the end of that uh, event comic. So it was seen as a major turning point for a lot of characters. So even here, we get a small difference. Captain America's death motivated troves of characters. It wasn't about a specific person. And to me, this is hard to include on a list for fridging since it doesn't really motivate one specific character. Also, he came back from the dead not that long after. <laughs> so it's another instance where they're like, well, we went back on that. And this is where we get to Charles Xavier, who had multiple deaths in the comics, and none of them really fit the fridging trope and spirit. He faked his death. He died when an alien infected his body, only to be cloned shortly after. He was killed by his son on accident, kickstarted an entirely new reality. He was shot in the head by a member of the X-Men. He was killed by another member of the X-Men. And he was killed by a hit squad when he started his own nation. None of these actually were used to motivate a single character and were huge events for the entire team. This could be forgiven because it's not like it needs to be centered on one character's motivation. But I mean, each one of these times he came back from the dead. And at no point, like, I, I've read each of these deaths. I can't think of a single time where it happens and it was in service of another character's uh, story. It's just, it's Charles' story. He dies. He has agency in, uh, uh, for the most part in his own story and he dies. That It doesn't fit <laughs> at all. I don't know. He's got like more lives than a cat. Like, geez. I mean, it is kind of interesting. In the new X-Men comics, um, they death is such an interesting concept uh, because they have basically done away with it for, for mutant characters. Uh, Charles Xavier now has a portable Cerebro, and it sort of stores your psyche as he scans you. So it, it creates a backup. And using a couple of other mutants, they have the ability to uh, bring uh, a body like a, an exact replica of you uh, give it life and then he just implants all of your memories, your personality, everything into that body. So you're basically reborn uh, anytime you die. It, it's a really, really interesting... What was that? It's, oh, I, I, it's one of those things that I actually really enjoy because I, I kind of hate the revolving door of death in comics. Where like, oh, we killed this person and then, but don't worry, in a year they'll be back and it'll be like nothing changed. And I don't necessarily think that like you should stop killing characters. I do think that maybe it happens too much. Um, but having the dynamic changed to, well, there's actually a way to bring people back from the dead. So now you have to work with that framework. In order to kill somebody, there has to be a reason for that death. So, like they did, they killed um, Kitty Pride recently in the comics, uh, who goes by Kate now. And her death is fascinating, I think, because they didn't know if they could bring her back. And it's part of kind of like a political drama uh, in in the comic. And like that, you'll notice when I went through the examples of uh, fridging, I didn't comment on that because her death, it does give some like motivation to some other characters, but her death is in service of her own plot. It's it's really well done. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I really like the, um, her uh, her character arc in the the comic in general because it's, it, she's kind of growing up. And one of the parts of growing up, I actually went out and bought this this issue. I've I've been reading most of them digitally, but I went out and actually bought the physical copy of this uh, because it was the first on panel uh, same sex kiss that she has had, and she has been queer coded basically from her inception in comics. I mean, she was young, but like pretty early on, they made a point of, you know, she has a very close relationship with this female character and she has another uh, uh, close relationship with this other female character. And there are little moments that they just sort of put in there that are very clearly like she has feelings or has a relationship with this person. But because of, uh, the comics code authority or just uh, editorial at the time, they were never really able to make that text until recently. That's awesome. If anyone's listening, I highly recommend uh, to start reading the Marauders comic book. That's where all of this happens. Fantastic. So then if we keep going down the list, we come to Archie Andrews who dies in an alternate future. And the entire story is about how other characters react to his passing. So this doesn't count in any way that you look at it. It's not really about motivating other people. It's about his death and how people react to him being dead. <laughs> it's, it's like how, how would um, Ar- Archie Andrews is from the Archie comics, or if you've ever watched uh, like Riverdale. Um, it yeah. is, it's basically just what if we did an alternate universe and we killed him and then just looked at how other people would change based on him being dead. It's it it doesn't work. <laughs> it's kind of like if you know you lost like a high school like classmate. It's not really like a well, I must avenge him. I'm like, no, I I had like maybe one class with him. It doesn't matter. I mean, to an extent, I, the 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 Archie Andrews um example here is more about how uh, like, you know, he had, he always went back and forth between Betty and Veronica. It was more just be like, okay, so he dies. Now what happens to Betty? Uh, because that was like, maybe her boyfriend, someone she had a big crush on. Like, how, what, what would change in Riverdale with this one person being dead? So it's like, uh, it, like it is, it, it does put a little bit more importance on him. But again, so then the story then is still about him. <laughs> it's about his death. How his life impacted the women. Well, yeah. Or, I mean, and other people too, but the most prominent example would be the women. And if we look at uh, Batman's death in the comics, it's kind of accurate. Uh, several characters mourned him. Nightwing became the new Batman. And this was a driving force in comics for a while. Batman came back from the dead almost immediately after this, though. Like, they killed him, and it was like a couple months later, they did an entire comic book about how he came back from the dead. So it's, I find all of these pretty difficult to take. Uh, So then we come to um, Uncle Ben. And I have no notes. It's a pretty perfect example. that It is... For it, you kill Uncle Ben, it's entirely there to motivate Peter Parker. That is, you got the only the only slight change I would make is like 
maybe to motivate a female character. But regardless of that, you got it. There is a an example of a male character being killed in service of someone else's story. Perfect. You got one out of that entire list. <laughs> if we keep going, though, we look at, uh, say, Superman's death at the hands of Doomsday and how that was a huge event in the comic, but not really a motivation for a specific hero except for Steel. Other characters took the role of Superman, and it was treated as a huge marketing event, which didn't last long before Superman came back from the dead with an awesome mullet, and I'm still excited to see when I revisit these comics. That was a fucking awesome mullet and a black costume. Superman looked awesome. He also had a big gun because he had no powers, and it sounds really dumb. It works. I don't know why it works. It's really stupid, but it works. Uh, and then we have another one that was uh, Flash, who died saving the multiverse and allowed Wally West to take the mantle and become newest speedster to take the name. This could be a good example, but it's another one that comes at the end of a huge event, and he came back from the dead later, negating the spirit of the trope. So, of the examples listed, only really one of those is a perfect example of fridging. And I'm not saying the rest aren't. Uh, like they, I'm not saying that they can't matter in terms of like what people are arguing, but what I'm saying is you don't see the same amount of backtracking or restorations to the women who have been fridged unless you're a Batgirl. So with over 70% of mainstream superhero characters being male, they also benefit from not having the trope stick when applied to them. And in fact, the final thing that I wanted to mention is the, the counter to the counterclaim. Uh, in his book, Dangerous Curves, Action Heroes, Gender, Fetishism... Uh, God damn it. You were on the last episode where I had to say this word, and I keep fucking it up. Action... <laughs> Let's see. In his book, Dangerous Curves, Action Heroes, Gender, Fetishism, and Popular Culture, Jeffrey A. Brown noted that while male co- comic book heroes have tended to die heroically and be magically brought back from the dead, like nearly all of our previous examples, female characters have been likelier to be casually but irreparably wounded or killed, often in a sexualized fashion. The Joker shattered the original Batgirl's spine just for fun, resulting in her being written as a wheelchair user for over a decade, and also sexually assaulted her since he undresses her and takes photos of her to show her father. So even later, you get examples like Black Mask, binding, torturing, and killing the first female Robin from the DC Universe, Stephanie Brown. I want people listening to this to let go of some of their defenses. Um, The arguments that I see so fervently against fridging existing or mattering tend to come from people who feel threatened that there is a new way to look at how things are done. Uh, Nobody is saying that a female character can't have bad things done to them, but it's lazy to fall back on that as a motivator. And I like, as we've mentioned all throughout this, like it also disproportionately happens to women. So maybe there should be some changes to that. We need to do a better job of telling good stories and not fetishizing violence against women. Agreed. That's really all that I I, I had prepared on this. Like I said, this is a, it's fairly straightforward. (laughs) This thing happened. Someone commented on it. And then you have a couple of people that were like, "Uh, I refuse to acknowledge that this is a problem. It's like with comedy, like I think there are ways to write a joke that isn't necessarily like crude or like, you know, blatantly offensive. If you're just kind of like, 
women get raped. We're like, wait, what? Like, that's, you know, obviously going to be triggering for somebody. But if you are creative in talking about a certain situation, then it's like, all right, yes, it is a way to make something really shitty funny. But I, yeah, it's just kind of like that muscle that needs to be worked a little harder for all writers in general, no matter like your genre. Yeah, I mean, I I know that I I've only read part of the um, Fire and Ice series, uh, and I never actually watched Game of Thrones. Um, but I know a, I know a big complaint that people had uh, in regards to George R. R. Martin was how often rape was used uh, in the books, uh, and I assume in the TV show. Um, but I, like I said, I never, never watched it. And I, I will say there are, there are, that's its own weird thing in writing. Uh, how often rape is used as like a backstory or um, as a way to either show something horrible happening to a woman without killing her or to, add, to give sympathy to that character or, um, or people that know them. And I think that is, it's so hard because I don't want to say that there are rules to how we do things. I don't, I don't agree with saying something is always good or always bad uh, when it comes to, to writing a story. Not every story has to follow a three-act structure. Not every story has to be like the hero's journey. You don't have to go in uh, with a, a, a specific structure uh, in place. But I think when something is used so much, uh, and if it is disproportionately affecting a particular population, I think that's worth looking into. I think it's worth changing. I think it's worth putting the extra effort in. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, and this this also goes into like so like you know people argue about representation in in uh, in media. Uh, it's hard to find, say, a, an action movie that stars a woman. It's hard to uh, find a uh, fucking any movie that has a predominantly uh, black cast or a predominantly Asian cast that is not like specifically set in, like, say, China or something or Japan or something like that, where it's like. Obviously, we're going to do this, and even then, they did. They cast Scarlett Johansson <laughs> in the the Ghost in the Shell movie. Uh, so, it, it's you have um, a situation where people are asking about representation in media, and then the representation that you give them is well, if you're a woman, it is fairly likely that you are going to be uh, raped, maimed, or killed. Because of someone else. Right. And I think that is fucked up. (laughs) 
It's like I I just watched I, I just watched something on uh, uh, on HBO and I was really excited because it was a documentary about a polyamorous relationship, and I don't think those are often shown in um, in in media that much. And when they are, that's usually not shown in a positive light. It's usually just kind of like, oh, that's weird, or this is why that relationship failed. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and I was, I was excited about this and I watched it and I, I found, uh, it, it ended with them breaking up and it was also the, it was, it was also not really a documentary because it turns out that the whole thing was recreated because he lost most of the footage. So he hired an actress and wait, what? It, oh, it's, I, I was so pissed. I was watching this movie. It is, so it was marketed as a documentary and it's about um, this couple and they had an open relationship and, and it became a poly relationship. And what eventually happened, they, they were recording themselves and the ways that their relationship were expanding. What eventually happened is the, uh, the woman in the relationship left uh, the the director of the movie. And when she left, she took all of her footage that she recorded with her. So he was like, I have half a movie now. Um, so what he ended up doing was he cast an actress and they recreated a bunch of scenes um, and then acted like it was just a documentary until like the end of the movie when they were like, by the way, this whole thing we had, we, we were lying to you because the actual woman took the footage with her and she didn't want to be in it. She gave blessing for someone else to play her, but she took the footage that she recorded. So this is all just remade. I'm sure some of it was probably made up. Uh, Cause I, I can't imagine he knew there's some stuff that happens that he's not involved in. So I'm sure he made that part up or I don't know. Yeah, it was weird. That feels very deceptive. Uh, so the movie felt weird because I was like, well, I thought I was getting uh, a, a movie about alternative lifestyles. Uh, like there would be a nice positive um, movie about that. And it wasn't. It, <laughs> uh, it was just an, a, another one about how that relationship, like how relationships like that end. Plus it was deceptive on top of that. Um, so, I mean, this is way far outside of the point, but it was mostly just about like how, you know, when you look for representation, it becomes way more important for the positive aspects of that representation to be shown. Uh, yeah, I agree. I actually just, um, watched the movie Thunder, Thunder Force on Netflix. Um, and I know it's a comedy and it's not necessarily based off of like anything, I don't think, but you have Melissa McCarthy and, um, Octavia Spencer who are both, you know, like plus size women. And the premise is that you have these people who have special powers because of like some radioactive stuff that happened, um, and of course, with that radioactive stuff, they're they're doing crime and everything. So um, Octavia Butler's character is a scientist and she figured out a way to make regular people powerful. But she's testing it on like her and her friend first. And so, you know, you have these two like 
plus size women, like being superheroes. One's black, one's white. And it, it feels like mm. really well done to me, not just because I'm like, oh my God, diversity, but it just <laughs> kind of like, it makes sense because it's like, yeah, if you're going to talk about a nerd in a lab, they're not always fit and handsome and like, you know, just like a man. They're diverse and like, hey, she wanted to experiment on herself and her friend happened to get in the way of her testing something. And so they're like, well, let's be a duo. And it was it was just great. And I think like, you know, if you just try instead of just, you know, being lazy and falling back on like, all right, here's a a male. Uh, Maybe we'll make him. Hispanic. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. And, but I mean, there's also like, okay, so there is, uh, there's a movement. I'm going to be talking about this movement coming up um, called Comics Gate. And one of the arguments that I've seen quite often from people within the community, I'm not saying it's a tenet of their beliefs, but just saying that this happens to come up quite a bit with these people is like they get really angry when, uh, a a female character is no longer wearing like the really hypersexualized like basically bikini outfits that like superhero characters often have. Um, Batgirl is one big example. They actually they made Batgirl's costume look like something that you could put together, and I thought it looked really cool. And a lot of people were mad because it's like, well, but like we want to look at like a hypersexualized. Woman, I mean, the men are hypersexualized, blah, 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 blah. The argument there is for the men, that is the way that men want to be seen. Uh, it's not right. the way that, that, like, women might want to see men like that, but more often that is, it's the male power fantasy. And then for the women that are being shown as, like, hypersexualized, that is just being done to, again, further that male fantasy. And it's not really representation for women. It is just there to entice men. So then you get, you get bad examples of representation. And, and then if you couple that with the fact that uh, <laughs> like half the time they get killed because of, somewhat, uh, because of the male character's story arc, then you get... Uh, no good real examples of 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 women i mean that's why in the 80s and the 90s the sandman comics that were coming out from vertigo attracted more female readership than pretty much any other book at the time if you go back and read those sandman is the main character he is a man but like a lot so many of the the other characters that show up are women and they're just women. You know, this is like, Oh, she's a librarian. This person like happens to practice witchcraft or whatever, but they live in this high rise. This person's a lesbian. This person is a stripper, but like they, they live lives. They, they aren't there to be ogled or to be killed for other people. They are their own characters. They have agency. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I, to bring it back to George R.R. R. Martin, one of my favorite uh, quotes that I read from him, someone asked him, how do you write uh, such good female characters? And he, I, I'm going to paraphrase and I'm probably going to fuck it up, but 
one of the things that he said was, you know, it's a funny thing. I always just assumed women were people. I don't think that happens that often. <laughs> Amen to that, you know? Yeah. So we're not that we're different, but we're still people. <laughs> I mean, with that, I think uh, we've covered everything uh, that we can about this topic. Like I said, there wasn't a whole lot to go over for this one. Uh, is there anything that you want to, to to plug for the people out there? Nothing to plug today. I think, you know, last time I mentioned Lanula Nutrition Consulting is my side hustle. So if you want to talk about, you know, getting some better dietary habits, you can come check me out over there. But yeah, just trying to wait out my two weeks until I can start doing stuff outside. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Well, uh, you can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episodes at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at pedanticast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.comicallypedantic.com. I do have to apologize. I know it has been a very long time uh, I, since I was putting out things regularly. This will be put out at the end of like a tale, uh, like a, a whole string of episodes uh, uh, that I was able to release. And it's probably going to end up being more like that in the future where there's going to be some time off and then a bunch of episodes and some time off and a bunch of episodes. And the reason is this shit takes forever to read uh, and write for, and I live a very busy life. (laughs) So that being said, this show is entirely listener supported. And if you'd like to support the show, you can help us stay ad free and possibly be mentioned on air. You can check out the Patreon link at the top at www.comicallypedantic.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them in text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like your name or question read on the air. And if you like this show, Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing to help spread the word. Like I said before, it does take a very long time to do all the research and writing for this. So there will be some delays moving forward, and hopefully I'll be able to get like a good schedule set up. Uh, but we will be back soon with even more diving into comic book culture. And until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop.